This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 9th of February 2023, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, together with the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, were delighted to co-host an event in Sydney entitled Creative Resistance, Behrouz Buchani and Friends on Fighting a Dehumanising System. Owing to severe storms in Sydney, Behrouz Buchani and his colleague Omid Tofigian were delayed and were only able to join for the second part of the programme. The event therefore commenced with an initial panel discussion looking at the impact and significance of Behrouz's work for the refugee movement in Australia. Participating in that discussion were Madeleine Gleeson, Senior Research Fellow at the Caldor Centre and author of the award-winning book Offshore, Behind the Wire on Manus and Nauru, Zaki Haidari, Refugee Rights Campaigner at Amnesty International and Ambassador for the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, Munes Manzubi, a long-time collaborator and translator of Behrouz, a community arts and cultural development worker, and a content producer at SBS Radio's Persian program, and Ben Doherty from The Guardian, a Walkley Award-winning journalist who has worked closely with Behrouz over many years. In the second part of the discussion, Munes and Ben are joined on stage by Omid Tofikian, a researcher and community advocate and a long-time collaborator with Behrouz and translator of his work, and finally, Behrouz Buchani himself an award-winning author, accomplished journalist, esteemed filmmaker and a respected cultural advisor and advocate. His first book, No Friend But the Mountains, writing from Manus Prison, illuminated the devastating experiences of those subject to Australia's offshore processing regime. This particular discussion took place at the end of Behrouz's first visit to Australia, undertaken to launch his new book, Freedom Only Freedom, which brings together not only Behrouz's own writings, but those of others on the panel and many people beyond. That book is a breathtaking work, spanning years of sometimes surreptitious writing, described by Behrouz as a duty to history. After an introduction by Caldor Centre Director, Cientia Professor Jane McAdam, the conversation was moderated by Sarah Dale, the Principal Solicitor and Centre Director of the Refugee Advice and Casework Service. As Jane has introduced, I'm Sarah Dale, the Centre Director of RACS, and it's my absolute pleasure to be now leading this two-part panel this evening. Uh, for this initial section, we will be reflecting on what it is that Beru's, uh his resistance, his movement, his activism, what impact that has had on the refugee movement here in Australia. Uh, and so with that framing, I'm going to throw firstly to Ben Doherty to reflect on what impact it is that Baru's work has had on the refugee movement in Australia. Thank you, Sarah, and, and good evening, everybody. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here um, and it will, uh, alongside my panellists, and it will be an, an even greater pleasure once Baru's um, turns up. This is very Baru's. Um, uh, but it's um, he has been... He has been one of the most extraordinary voices of the last decade in Australian journalism. For a man who couldn't set foot in this country, um, he has had an extraordinary impact on our understanding of Australian asylum policies, 
the way they operate, the impact they have on people, and the actual reality of the of of the way these policies work on the ground. Um, I was reflecting, I was reading the, the 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 brief chapter I contributed to this book, and I remember now distinctly the the beginnings of our collaboration. And I didn't know his name. He, I was sort of newly installed as as the immigration correspondent for the Guardian, and we we recognised that this this uh, this uh, recently reintroduced policy of of offshore detention um, was being hugely underreported, and we just knew nothing about it. It was this arcane world that was very, very hard to see into. We didn't know what was going. You know, you you remember the days that we don't talk about on water matters and and offshore matters and and this sort of veil of secrecy. Um, and there was just it felt impenetrable initially, and then you know, like like most journalists, you just you just start ringing people. You just start, what can you tell me about this? Who can I talk to? How how do I understand what's going on here? And eventually someone came back and told me, there's someone in Manus who's got a phone and we can put you in touch. And they wouldn't tell me who it was or anything about them. And he was in my phone as Manus contact. And that's how we started. And we started in this sort of, when the signal was enough, we'd, we'd a little WhatsApp message back and forth. And um, a, a terribly unconventional, but ultimately, um, I think, incredibly vital journalistic collaboration emerged out of that, um, in that we were able to get an insight into exactly what was happening there. And who better to, I suppose, to, to tell the story of what's happening in that place, what, that, what, that, um, what those policies look like, how they operate, than someone standing at the centre of it, someone in its epicentre. And Baruz was initially, and understandably, quite reticent, quite nervous, um, he was, and you can understand in those early months in Manus Island, this this new regime all around you, these high wire fences, these guards everywhere. You have no idea of where the boundaries really are, the the, the extent of your freedom. So there were, there were just little bits of information that would come um, from Beruz. He'd say, "This is happening. We've moved, been moved here. This is the new procedure for medical. This is this is what we're being told about how our our, our claims of protection are being processed." And so we gradually started to build this this picture of what was happening. And then Baruz started to work out where the boundaries were. He felt a bit more confident. He could offer a quote, you know, an asylum seeker inside Manus, an Iranian refugee on in 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 Manus detention centre. We we he gradually became more confident. He was incredibly humble in in what he knew and what he didn't know. If he didn't know something, he'd go away and find it out. He talked to people. He talked to guards. He talked to, to other detainees and come back with information. And we recognised really quickly, and I remember how early it was. I remember the discussions we had. This, and so, we don't need Baruz as an anonymous quote in our newspaper. We don't need him, you know, even a, 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 or as a source offering information. The work he's doing in that place is journalism, and it's very, very good journalism. And who better to bear witness to what was happening in that place than someone standing in the middle of it? Um, Baruz, Baruz's voice, its its power, its credibility, its authority would have found a way out into the world just by sheer force of his personality. And the people in this room will, will experience that tonight when he arrives. Um, I'm really proud he found his voice in the pages of The Guardian and then elsewhere and then in books and then film. And and, and we've, we've seen the talent and the dynamism and, and the power there. But he really was that sort of clarion voice of Manus Island that tells us this is what's happening in this place. This is the reality of what's being done with the money of Australian people in the name of the Australian people. And this is what you need to know. Um, it's no accident um, I was in, in Manus Island and being sort of smuggled in and out of the detention centre in the middle of the night when there was a standoff in late 2017. Um, and you'll remember at the very end of that, when the police came in to take people away, the first person they came for, one of the very first people they came for 
whereas Baruz Bushani, because they recognised he was the voice of Manus Island and they recognised how powerful that voice was. Thank you, Ben. And I guess uh, for me, Zaki, and obviously I'm incredibly biased sitting here next to Zaki, Iraq's ambassador and refugee rights campaigner at Amnesty International, but there have been two names that have really gone hand in hand in terms of hearing from the lived experience and their lived expertise of people seeking asylum and refugees, and that's Baruz Bachani and Zaki Haidari. And so, Zaki, what has it meant to you having a voice like Baruz uh, being an ally with you in this movement? Thank you. I think, yeah, thank you, Sarah. That's very uh, kind of you. Uh, I'll go a step back of, you know, what's to be a ref what what is it like to be a refugee in a detention center far away from a country that you sought asylum and that sort of flex for myself as well being detained and being then um forced to not speak up um you know forced or you know taking your identity away dehumanizing you in so many levels by the institutions and the government and power uh, that are in place, um, it, it's just um, so wrong for a country like Australia to do that, you know. Uh, and then you as a, as a as a refugee or people seeking asylum coming from a country like Iran or Afghanistan, uh, that you're so, uh, you know, desperate to speak up of the regimes and countries that you uh, sort of, flew to seek, seek asylum, and then coming to Australia, uh, hoping that it's a country that does value democracy, uh, freedom of speech, and uh, your uh, basic human rights. And, and those all will be taken away within hours on your arrival. And then the next um, thing you know, you're detained uh, just because you're seeking asylum, and everything has been taken away from you, and that includes your name, your identity, um, your basic humanity, you're basically like, you will be treated like an animal uh, in a cage. Um, it's very uh, depowering and dehumanizing for any refugees. And then uh, from that, you know, raising your voice and, and uh, exposing the system and the regime uh, by taking all the risks, you know, uh, we, were, we had to uh, obey a code of behavior, which was really hard for us to not speak up. Um, and um, finding ways and allies that you could trust uh, as someone that you, you, you normally don't trust because everyone looks like that they're controlling you. Everyone looks like they're part of the institutions and power uh, that is, you know, on you, uh, controlling you in the cage. Uh, it's crucial. And I think Beruz did an amazing work by um, using his skill, but also building the trust between refugees and, 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 and you know, in, in Manus. It's not just his story, it's his work and skill that build that trust and then exposing the system by telling his personal stories, but his friends' stories. And I'm sure it pains them when he was seeing uh, his friends killing themselves in this detention center, as it does uh, so to a lot of refugees that uh, have been here for the past 10 years. You know, it's hard to see that you're coming with friend, with your friends on a boat or people that you will make friends, and then you're all going through the same process. And then witnessing the pain in them to a point that they are so sick that they can't live anymore. 
taking their lives. And so I think um, I admire his work and um, he has provided, um, you know, this a platform that every refugee could see themselves, that if you're under whatever system or institutions, you still could have a voice. Um, and also uh, there are people that you could trust and in, 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 you could have a voice. And I think that fear in ally building is very crucial. Um, if you're, for, for us, if we were detained in, in a very cagey system that, you know, everything has been taken away from you. And I think um, Sarah, Ben and Monet and uh, Madeline, you all play the key role by empowering refugees to have that voice and platform. Of course, uh, it does take courage for refugees uh, to stand up and shine, uh, but we need allies to sort of uh, keep exposing uh, the cruelty of the refugee policies in Australia. Thank you, Seki. Um, Munez, I'm going to come to you with a two-part question in, in just a second. But before I do that, Madeline, a lot of our work uh, as lawyers and people seeking policy reform, uh, we've really had to train the refugee movement, the refugee sector, organisations to ensure that that voice of experience is embedded in our work. How has the voice of someone like Baruz changed the way we can advocate for policy reforms? Thanks, Sarah. Fundamentally changed. If I think back to uh, when I started my research on offshore processing just after it was reintroduced in 2012, uh, and at that time there was no information that could really be trusted. Uh, the media was not at that point a reliable source of any real information, Ben, I don't know if you're working on it but yet then, you're, you're excluded from this, but I, I mean ma mainly the other sources. If you were lucky, you might get a statistic on how many people had been moved where, but then people were basically disappearing into Nauru and Manus Island and would not be heard from again. And the first real turn was, uh, I believe, at the Senate inquiry into the 2014 riots, and that was the first time we started to get testimony from people uh, who'd been inside the camps, although still mainly workers, but at least there was some word getting out of what had happened around that riot, but also what had been happening until that point. And I remember scouring every submission uh, and just thinking, this is quite extraordinary what we're finally learning. And then from then it just gradually, it took a while, but started opening more and more. And you have Beirut and you had others as well who started to be able to talk out, but at incredible risk. I mean, there's still a degree of risk, but, you know, in those earlier years, huge risk if they'd been caught, if they'd been found. Uh, there's no way that we could guarantee that talking to us would not reflect negatively. Uh, given the lack of transparency around, you know, refugee processing and those kinds of things, we couldn't guarantee that talking to us wouldn't result in a negative outcome. Uh, so it was very hard at those times. But, I mean, we've recently reflected on the positive and more recent times that at a lot of our events now, we have people uh, here amongst us in Australia, finally, uh, who can speak for themselves about what their experience was like. And that has completely shifted the nature of um, all of these discussions for the better. Um, I can only think how uh, it would have been better if we could have had those voices from the very beginning telling us from day one what was happening, whether that might have changed something. Thank you. Munez, uh, in your role at the Bogham Centre in the Inner West, you work with a really large number of people that have been affected by offshore processing. And I think for me, this time that Baruz has been in Sydney, I have, and Australia, 
I've been so heartened to see how many people that we under the law refer to them as transitory people, but how many people have been affected by offshore processing that are coming to those events and speaking to Baruz and asking him questions and also being inspired to raise their own voice. Um, and I wondered if you could reflect on what's what's it been your experience in working with that community? Do you think, do you see that impact of having Baru's voice heard so loudly in the community, bringing them hope that that change may happen, or at least that there are people in Australia that care about how they're being treated? Thank you, Sarah. Um, first, I just want to say that uh, my heart goes out to the people um, uh, who are affected uh, by the devastating earthquake in uh, Kurdistan, Iraq, no, not Iraq, Turkey and Syria, uh, and who lost their loved ones. Uh, so maybe I should start with um, something interesting that uh, happened um, two days ago when Behruz was in the parliament. And I just want to just talk about how we can support each other for a collective purpose. Um, so when Behruz um, was supposed to, the, uh, to go to the parliament, one of the women that you mentioned actually uh, approached me, uh, one of the lovely uh, women that usually come to the center. And uh, she said that I really want uh, my voice to be heard in the parliament. And uh, I really want to be connected with Behruz and see how he can support me. And she's an amazing artist. Uh, she painted a very beautiful uh, artwork which um, uh, reflects her journey and actually her son's journey to Australia. Uh, and then Behruz actually invited her to come to the parliament and took her to the room that he was speaking and just uh, she spoke with like uh, the Greens member of parliament. Uh, everyone uh, saw her artwork and everyone listened actually to her story. And then after that, she called me and she said it was uh, the best day that I had after 10 years. Um, can you imagine how these people are silent, how these people are living in a shadow and they don't have any rights in this country and they are like totally marginalized? Zaki, you and myself about 18 months ago had the privilege of going to Parliament House with two other very key uh, advocates for themselves, Tanush and Ramsey. Um, it's no secret that I was incredibly emotional that day walking into Parliament House with the two of them um, addressing parliamentarians in Parliament House, having been expelled to Manus Island and being, you know, the first two to really be able to do that. And it was incredibly moving. It was incredibly special and it was incredibly powerful. Uh, you had the privilege of being there with Baruz this week, speaking to parliamentarians and seeing the reactions of advisors and ministers and the parliament. How impactful are those moments for our advocacy? Thank you. Um, yeah, I was at Baruz's 
press conference uh, in the Parliament House. Um, again, I think it's a, it's a reflection of um, the shift in conversation of refugees, people seeking asylum, um, you know, labeled in so many different awful labels that I don't want to mention any of them. Um, ones that in the same house as Beirut was reflecting uh, were make, they were making decisions that were affecting lives. Um, they were making decisions about fathers, about mothers, about families, about children in Nauru, um, in children in detention center, uh, where they never met them. They never listened to their stories, or even if they did, they were so ignorant that they ignored the pain and suffering of those thousands of refugees um, that sent them off to offshore or keep them in detention center, or keep them in community. We have decreated this awful situation for people like myself, that we still don't feel like we are equal citizens and Australian citizens, or equal human beings, because by the system that they created with the refugee policies, different visa types. Um, having those awful experience and then going to Parliament House at the same place that are making decisions, talking to the politician directly, like having Beirut in front of camera, in media, I think it's a shocking moment for the, for the Australian politics, for the Australian media and society, that these refugees are not what you've been told. You know, they're normal human beings, they're extraordinary human beings. You know, I think that the whole conversation has changed in the past 10 years. Um, and I think, uh, that human connection, but also using your skills and power to attack politicians, not physically, of course, but mm -hmm. by your by your skills and, and power to, to say that I am powerful than you. You know, I have skills and knowledge that you don't have. And I'm still a human being. I'm as human as you are. And Beru has shown that. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to thank some skilled and powerful individuals, Madeline Gleason and Zaki Haidari, for joining us for the beginning framing of this conversation. Thank you both. And accordingly, Baruz, please come join us, and Amid as well, please come and join us. Baruz, we waited almost 10 years for you to be here, so waiting a little bit longer seems like not something that we could all refute. So we're really glad that you've made it. Um, we're sorry that Sydney has put on a terrible weather show for you, but we're really, really grateful to have you here for this conversation. We've been reflecting on the power of your advocacy and I noted at the beginning how ridiculous it is that we were having that conversation about you and, and not with you, because really you are the most powerful voice uh, in this room. And so I'm gonna take you back to the very beginning, if that's all right. And when you were in Manus and you were detained and Australia had exiled you, you decided to reach out. Uh, and I'd love to get into your mind and understand what was that original motivation to reach out and why reach out to Australia and what formed that decision for you to reach out to, to journalists, um, to advocates and, you know, what was your strategy and motivation at that beginning time for you? Yeah, thank you very much. I think um, always I uh, say that people look at the 
end of the journey or end of a story that uh, but people always forget about the beginning you know on that time that I arrived in Australia I arrived in uh, Christmas Island and they banished me to Manus Island I think the making decision to smuggle a phone into the prison camp and communicate or try to find someone in Australia or you know other part of the world I think that was that needed something that I feel that I uh, borrowed from my background as a Kurdish my background from uh, like resistance knowledge that we have in Kurdistan uh, a a kind of, but it was very difficult to, you know, reach out, find people. And I remember the first person that I wanted to find out was a refugee in Indonesia that he was in touch with a journalist that when we uh, drowned, almost drowned in the water, they took us from water and they put us in the hotel. He took photo of us. So I don't remember his name. I think his name was Michael or something like that. So that was the first per person that I tried to. Yeah, yeah, then other people, but I don't know how we, I met Ben. I don't remember exactly, but. I, I wish we'd kept the messages now, but it was sort of, I was just sort of sending these messages out and saying, my name's Ben, I'm a journalist from Australia. I understand you're, you know, do you want to, I understand you're Manus Island. We just started this very quiet conversation, I suppose. And I, I remember getting the sense back from you of being very nervous, very reticent and, and understandably very, I, not not slow to trust, but but just wary, I suppose. Well, who is this person on the other? And you had no idea who I was or my motivations or, or anything like that. And it just took, I, I do remember over months going back and forth and we just sort of slowly built this relationship and this and this sense of trust. I remember you kept, I had a young, uh, a young daughter at the time, so I was keeping strange hours as well. So you, you, you're always sending messages like two in the morning. Like, what are you, what are you awake for? But that, that was when they were, they were sort of coming back and forth. And we, and we just gradually sort of developed this. I think from my end, we developed a trust in you very, very quickly because the information was, was very powerful, was very clear, was very accurate. Everything you, you told us, we'd go and check out and, 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 and found out that it was absolutely correct. And I think understandably from your end it, 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 that trust was a little bit slower to build but I also felt that and and uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this that that being a journalist your background as, as a Kurdish journalist your, your background you know writing in a, in a resistance form of writing um, it, what you were doing in Manus was a continuation of that and it gave you a real this was the feeling I got from you know thousands of kilometers this real sense of purpose and for so many of the men held on Manus Island, there was this aimlessness, this listlessness, because there was nothing. Every day was, was exactly the same as the last day. And there was the indefinite wearing nature of detention really was very, very difficult on people's of mental health. And everyone in this room will, 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 will know of those impacts. But for you, every morning, every day, there was a purpose. There was a reason to get out of bed. There was a, there was, there was a, a task to do. And it, it feels to me that journalism was this incredibly powerful tool for you to, to grab onto, not only for the work that you did, but for yourself as well in that place. 
Yeah, but I think I should say something about um, you know, my relationship with uh, Ben and also Omid and some uh, others. But with Ben particularly, uh, when you are in a prison camp, you know, when you are a refugee, there is an imbalance in power. And uh, so that when you approach a detainee or a refugee, of course, uh, always I felt that people, the journalists, they treated me very unequal. It was not equal relationship, and that always made me angry at them. And uh, many journalists, at the, especially the first two, three years, they treated me like that and always they made me angry. So that was a part of my motivation as well, to punish this journalist. Sure. I'm my work, you know? Yeah, yeah. So so I was not resisting only against uh, the government. Sometimes I felt that I'm resisting against organizations as well. I'm resisting against the media as well. You know, um, uh, that's why... You know, uh, and I mentioned that in the parliament the other day, but I think that is very important that when you work, uh, people always judge refugees. The image of refugee, that word, that concept is very powerful. And people see refugees, judge refugees, and see them less. So that's why always I had a challenge with them, you know. Uh, but I just stop fighting against organizations because you cannot find fight with everyone. I would hate to have seen what resistance you showed the lawyers, Boris. <laughs> um, I think what we've touched on here is the real sense of responsibility that was shared by Omid, Munez, Ben, um, and I know even in our work at RACS, we share a real uh, responsibility for carrying these stories. Um, for preserving these voices and for protecting the people that we're engaging with from risk. Uh, and so I wonder if I can hear from you each, Omid, Munez and Ben, in journalism, in media, in writing, in preparing these such incredibly impactful pieces that you have, how do we do that better? You know, what have you learned from this process and what can we learn from this about responsibility, preservation and risk? I'll go to you first, Amit. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you to the organisers as well. I think I'd like to say just um, off the bat that um, today wasn't the delays and the difficulties today weren't a complete loss. In fact, going through all of that, the whole process, the delays, the uncertainty, the anxiety, uh, the kind of... The, the, the feeling that everyone's waiting for us, letting people down, uh, and of course all the different conversations and, and issues and problems that we were, we were um, going through, it reminded me of the process working with you when, when you were in Manus Prison. You know, the, um, uh, the constant changes in policy, the, the difficulties um, uh, organizing some kind of strategy, thinking about the techniques we were using, uh, and of course the stress, the anxiety, and uh, the feeling that you know maybe there's a chance I might um, let you down in some way. Like all of that was, you know, in some in some small way, I was feeling that today as we were trying to get here on time, and uh, I was having flashbacks. 
So, so I think uh, what's really important uh, to uh, acknowledge is that in the in the very beginning there were very few people that we could we could rely on we could we could trust as well uh, when uh, working in this space. But I think it was the minute I read um, Behrouz's article in the Guardian, the first article you published under your real name, the article that you um, translated, Munis. Uh, when I first read that, I thought, first of all, I've been working in this space for some time. Why don't I know about this person? Why isn't there more conversation in the um, in the different sort of circles that I'm mixing in and I work in? Uh, why is this person not a part of that conversation? And I really wanted to uh, contribute. Uh, in some way to bring Behruz in. I, I was uh, read his work, I read, and once I contacted him and we started a relationship, I read more examples of his work, I started to translate, and I thought, this person needs to be an integral part of many discourses, and I want to introduce this particular individual, this particular uh, activist, this thinker, this creative, this intellectual, I want to introduce them to um, different spaces where maybe... Uh, uh, this kind of voice doesn't have an opportunity to to share and to contribute. So it was a massive responsibility. I had all of these grand, grand ideas about how that should happen, how that should take place. But also I, I was um, convinced that it can happen. I, I, be, I believed in it. And I think that's one of the things when working in this space is to believe in people from the very beginning, to, to really... Um, have faith that something can change with new kinds of collaboration, new kinds of uh, interactions, new kind of knowledge production, and um, and of course then then I met uh, Munis and uh, and Ben and other people and uh, and that uh, network that collaboration just kept growing. It I think something magical happened when all of these came together. So just just to finish uh, in relation to what you mentioned about what can be done better, uh, how people can support, I think. Uh, every, a lot of people have good intentions, but it's important that that some kind of practical institutional support uh, is is put in place. Some kind of mechanisms where, when something like this arises, when somebody uh, produces something special, and um, uh, that that initial struggle that those difficulties those obstacles don't don't exist anymore we can move into new spaces and and create the same kind of um, magic i think thank you um so i'll start with um when uh Behru started just um texting me on whatsapp and i think you all know that uh, one of the advocates shane buzzy uh, put us in touch uh, and I can't remember those uh, dark and silent nights on Manus. And as Ben said, yeah, I was constantly receiving text messages uh, regardless what time it was. And, um, uh, and it was a big responsibility, really. So uh, uh, it was a matter of urgency to translate his work. Uh, because um, uh, something happened at Manus and um, it should be uh, heard, it should be published by media. So 
we were working really tirelessly and I was really like inspired and amazed by uh, Behru's um, how he is an intellectual person, how he can like analyze everything and put them like in the best way in, in the world, in the words, uh, like uh, in terms of having um, his uh, literary skills um, uh, at, and at the same time, analytical skills. Uh, and then um, I should confess, when Omid came on board, it was such a big relief for me because uh, then I could just share the burden with Omid. And actually later he just accepted more burden than me. But um, so apart from all the articles and all like uh, Behru's communication with advocates and uh, journalists um, and lawyers, uh, the book like um, No Friends But the Mountains was a really huge responsibility because um, he was writing them on WhatsApp messages and um, something suddenly happened on Manus, maybe uh, some people like um, attempted suicide or like other tragedies that we all know about them. And then uh, he got busy with other things like writing articles or doing other advocacy work. And for example, after like two months, uh, he was asking me that, okay, uh, Munez, can you just send me the last paragraph that I wrote for my book? So it was a really big responsibility for keeping uh, for me to keep them like all in the orders and all in the chapters. But as I said, when Omid came on board, it was a huge relief because um, because of his academic background, because of his understanding about like the um, policies here, and he grew up uh, he grew up here, and um, all of his experience um, working in this space. So yeah, so it's an opportunity to thank Omid as well here now. I think journalistically you have to be aware of that obligation. You have to be aware of the context of your reporting. Um, as a journalist, your obligation is to, is to accuracy, is to truth, is to the best version of truth that you can find to put on the page or, or that you can broadcast. But you do need to be aware of the context of the work that you're doing and the potential ramifications. And it is the case that in this country, governments not very long ago, there were governments in this country that would, would punish refugees and asylum seekers for, for, for speaking out. And there were ramifications for their situation. So you're always supremely conscious when people are in vulnerable situations, people are in difficult situations, that you're not contributing to that, you're not exacerbating that, you're not putting them at unnecessary risk. And you do feel a real sense of obligation because of the risk that people are taking to talk to you. Baruz, you speaking to me or others speaking, you know, saying, I want this to go out into the world, I need this to go out into the world, but you're very conscious of those risks and, and so am I. And I think, I think journalism without an awareness of, of those risks, without an obligation to that is, is a very fraught exercise, is very risky. And the other obligation I think that exists journalistically is to stay on the story. It's not just, we're just going to tell this one story, we're going to have a splash on Saturday and we move on to the new thing. It's to come back, to come time and time again to it, to be there again, I think is, is another obligation. Uh, can I add something? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you gave me permission <laughs> before this event. Okay, and also, yeah, Behrouz, I think in one of um, his articles mentioned duty to history, and I really like this. So I think it 
was and it is our duty to history to just um, fight against the oppressive system. Yeah, I, I think on that time uh, I had the, this conversation with them that <clears throat> I look at it as a, um, of course, a duty, but as a mission as well. And I was aware of what I'm going to do, what I am doing, you know. And that is, uh, I think, is very important in that context. And that's why even thinking about uh, bringing a phone in, smuggling a phone in, and try to write, I think that is a big thing. That was the first step. But it was the biggest step, I think. Because it, it was on the right time at beginning, and that took like at least two years that I felt that I established a network around myself so we can I can publish my own work. So, but I think it was very difficult as well, you know, uh, that media. Uh, I remember on that time. I worked with uh, Michael Gordon from the age, and yeah, Michael was a, a really great journalist and great friend. He suggested to uh, the age or and Sydney Morning Herald to let me to write a, a column per week, and the editor uh, refused. You know, so I mean, that was difficult for being a, a journalist there in that context as a refugee in Manus Island in a place that already, you know, designed to dehumanize us. We already were dehumanized in the media. We already were dehumanized in the, by the politicians. So I think that... Uh, that's why I have a huge respect to Ben and Guardian. That was important because they created a way, you know, created a way. And later, other people, other refugees, I think now for refugees, much easier to write something and publish it. But at the beginning, that was very difficult. I know that how we were struggling even with the organization MEAA. So it's better I don't mention their name. But <laughs> yeah, but many organizations, many uh, uh, human rights defenders, many, many names in this field. And uh, they really, they didn't trust in what I was doing. And that's why I think being aware of that is very important and understanding. Actually, that example of the Sydney Morning Herald is a uh, is good um, representation of what I was saying about practical or institutional support or the lack of it. We do um, have a comment, Bruce. We've got a lot of support online saying how wonderful it is to see you in Australia and what an inspiration you have been. Um, and we are getting a few questions online. We'll have time for maybe one or two questions. I'll have a look at what's online and see how many hands there are in the audience this evening. But it is impossible to have this conversation with the three of you without acknowledging the resistance in Iran. 
And so I wanted to go to you first, Baruz, and ask you, how did your resistance in Iran inform your work whilst in Manus to now inform the resistance movement and your activities now? Um, my position in Iran is very different. <laughs> yeah, so I'm quite unpopular among many people. Uh, and it's very difficult position because in Iran, uh, you know, we are at the beginning of this, uh, if we call it post-colonial knowledge. So it's very difficult, but uh, what we are doing, people like me, just uh, not fighting against the... Uh, I think it's very difficult if I talk about it. Against Persian supremacy in Iran, that the structure, we should fight against the uh, media as well. You know, the media who doesn't want, who don't want to give us platform or they want to take our platform, the platform from us. So... Uh, it's very difficult, it's very complicated, but for now, my role, my work in Iran is just to sometimes shake that that nation through social media, but of course I get attacked. But uh, I already accepted that uh, position, that role, but hopefully that... Uh, among Iranians with different backgrounds, we have a proper conversation and discussion that people in Iran know that that country is not only Persian. That country is not only Persian. That country is with different people with different background and ethnic, uh, ethnic uh, background. That's what we are doing in Iran. But it's very difficult because... Uh, yeah, I think I'm angry. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know, in times like this, with um, with all of these these excellent things happening um, at one time, Bezros being uh, able to come here and join us, uh, a new book, um, events like this, new forms of support, um, new opportunities. We want to celebrate. We want to uh, express joy but we're heartbroken about what's happening back in Iran and we want to do something. We want to um, acknowledge the resistance on the street, the people who are dying on the street, the people who are being executed, the people who are fighting and risking everything for, uh, for freedom, uh, for the future of Iran. And I think in, in relation to the work that we've done together, uh, Behruz, uh, Munis and, and myself, I think we can interpret that as a as a really special model. It's it's a I think it's a unique dynamic between us. First of all, Behruz, a member of a um, ethnic marginalized ethnic groups uh, persecuted ethnic group in Iran. Munis, someone a woman who has uh, lived under a, a patriarchal oppressive system um, for most of her life, and uh, knows what it means to uh, experience that, that kind of violence from the state. 
and uh, myself, someone who left uh, around the time of the revolution, also from a, a persecuted, suppressed group in Iran, um, based on socio-religious status, not on ethnicity. Um, but uh, but when we we understood each other because of that shared form of marginalization, that that those similarities between our experiences and our perspectives. And I think when we came together and we started working, something special happened. And and I think we see the results of that now. Um, a, a particular kind of magic emerged. And I personally think of this as a model for so many other projects, uh, political projects, but also creative projects too. So working with other people who have experienced displacement, exile, and incarceration, and in addition, um, collective action, collective resistance back home as well. What what we're doing, I think, can can inspire and act as a as a model, as I said, for, for something much bigger. Munez. Yeah, actually I found a lot of similarity between um the prisons in Iran and offshore detention. And I made a list to be honest, like not access to proper legal representatives, lawyers, and fair systems, rape, systematic torture, improper prison environment, family separation, and a lot more. So I don't want to just um, talk a lot, but um, I really want to pay my respect to ethnic communities and all marginalized people in Iran. That's why I chose a poet that Rosa beautifully included in her article. Rosa is one of the collaborators of this book. And the poet is by a court, uh, the poem actually is by a poet, Kurdish poet, poet called Shirku Bikas. And I'm gonna read like a part of it, if you don't mind, because I love literature. Is that okay? <laughs> okay. My oath is smoke. My words are ashes. My screams are my frozen blood and a downhill migration. Ever since there was migration, I'm migrating. Ever since there was a blaze, I'm burning. Ever since there was water, I'm drowning. Ever since there was razor, I'm sacrifice. Ever since there was land, I'm landless. Ever since there was mountain, I'm trembling. Ever since there was stick, I'm being beaten. I, before Moses, am a refugee. Before Jesus, I'm a crucified. Before Goresh, I'm being buried alive. Before Hussein, I'm being beheaded. And Rosa is here today. Uh, I just want to acknowledge one point. Um, I think something that Munis and I as translators really appreciate. Rosa also translated that into English. 
and Sherko Beckes was a massive inspiration for Behrouz. I think all the, in No Friend But The Mountains, all the poetic sections, uh, not all of them, but many of them, um, have uh, represent dream visions. And that's something that Behrouz uh, uh, learned from uh, or used as a model uh, when, uh, from, from um, Sherko Beckes. And he was, Sherko Beckes was also a journalist. I'm going to throw it open to the floor in just one moment and um, thank you to the people online who have posted their questions. I'm going to take the liberty of, of merging some of them, um, so please don't feel I've forgotten you. But there is one quite impactful question, Baruz, which I would like to put to you today, and that is today, what does freedom mean? That is a very hard question. <laughs> Um, always imagine freedom when I was in Manusana, a very simple picture that walk on the street and listen to music. That's very simple, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know really what's the definition of uh, freedom, the meaning of freedom. Uh, but for me, yeah, it's very difficult. I don't know. It's a very general question. Yeah. Any questions from the floor? I'm probably one of the people that was too bossy and too rude. And it's been a great honour learning from you and from this team how to talk and how to learn. Um. What is it that we can do apart from regional processing to dismantle sovereign borders? It seems to underpin. Uh, it seems to underpin uh, the renewal of Nauru, and it seems to be causing a lot of ongoing pain. Um, how can we end it? Yeah, I think uh, the the problem in this country is that we are facing a uh, detention industry. It is an industry. It is a border industry, detention industry, and the many companies are a part of this. Security companies, a company like IHMS uh, and other companies. So, and there is money there, you know, corruption there. It's a corrupt system. So while there is an industry, I think it's very difficult to change this. They want to keep the industry. You know, Ben published a story, uh, I think two weeks ago, 10 days ago, about the new contract that they made with an American company, uh, $420 million just to keep 70 people in Nauru. So that, that is the problem, you know, in this country. And uh, I think we should chase uh, the money. We should chase the companies. It's very interesting. Before I come, the first uh, night that I came to Australia, the first day, I saw that the... I booked a, hotel, a 
mantra hotel for me. Yeah, you know, that, I mean, that, yeah, yeah, they didn't know the the person who organized that. And then I say that we should uh, change it because I cannot be there. And uh, that shows that how this system works, how this system works, how the violence in this country, in this society, a big part of it is invisible, and how sometimes people who are working to support refugees, who are fighting against this system, they are getting fund or they are feeding from the, those uh, companies, but they are not aware of it. You know, like sometimes you do a work about refugees, you make an artwork, you go to a gallery, but you don't know that actually Wilson Security Company has a contract with that. You know, it's like that. Even for me, that I came to Australia and they booked a room in Mantra Hotel for me. So, I mean, that is the problem in this country, this network, this uh, huge network. Um, and it was like such a shame that after... Behru's presence in the parliament in the afternoon, um, the Labour government and in the parliament, they extended their contract with um, Norian government till 2033. Very shameful. Hey, Behru, it's always great to see you again. I guess my question is both to you and to Ben, following the evidence at the recent robo-debt inquiry where it was made very clear that the government, in order to silence anybody who criticised what was happening under robo-debt, targeted the individuals who dared to speak up to create fear to stop others from speaking up. How did you deal with that? What was your experiences around the fear that the government tried to create targeting you? And then, as a journalist who is seeing that information fed other agencies, to friendly agencies, as it was quoted at the inquiry. How do you deal with that and how do you try and combat that when you know the government is deliberately trying to silence people? That exposure at the, at the Royal Commission was a pretty ugly moment for journalism. No one likes to see how the sausages get made, but I think it was really important to expose the way that was being done and, and the fact that there are, there are clients journalists who can who can basically be, you know, be bought off for these stories and fed this information. They'll report it uncritically. They won't question it. They won't interrogate it all. And they'll splash it on the front page. And the, 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 the implications for that, the ramifications of that on people's lives are immense, as we saw in, in the robo-debt scandal. You know, we had people driven to self-harm. We had people driven to suicide by that. And that was a, that was a deliberate effort, not only to cow those people who'd spoken out, but to warn others against doing exactly the same thing to to cow others into silence and that was a that was a um uh, a brutal exposure of the kind of you know nasty realities of the, the 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 nasty reality of the way politics can get played in this in this country and i think Beruz is about to tell you and we were really conscious of this that Beruz suffered for what he did he suffered for, for his work on manus island he was dragged off to chalka more than once um, and held in isolation, held in confinement where he couldn't speak. And that was not only to silence him, but to silence others as well. That was a, a, a deliberate um, uh, response with a deliberate outcome in mind. 
And as a journalist, I think you need to be supremely conscious of what those potential ramifications are. And it's not to say that you shy away from those difficult stories. It's not to say that you don't report things or you, you run dead on stories because, um, because you fear the outcome, but you have to find ways to, to protect people. Uh, you have to find ways to be careful that you're not making a difficult situation, a dangerous situation, even worse. You do have to be aware of the consequences of, of what you report. We, we don't report in a vacuum. Um, there are contexts to all of these things. Yeah, I remember that. So for I think for five years, four years, anyone who within the system who would report about, uh, I mean, from the staff uh, and people who were working there, they would put them in the prison for two years. You know, that was the rule. That was the law on that time. And later they changed it, I think, what I remember. Yeah, but of course they didn't uh tolerate any journalist or reporter or anyone who works uh, against that system and i remember that uh, ben his photo they shared it i mean immigration in the manus island and in their pocket yeah that anyone who see this guy just let us know yeah we um that that photo remains sort of in the on a pillar in the middle of the Guardian newsroom, and it says "Toxave," which is sort of like warning in pigeon. It says, "If you see a, a terrible reproduction of a picture of me, I would have sent them a better one if they were going to find you." But they, if you see this gentleman, please report him to your manager immediately, because I'd been the Australian government knew I'd been given a visa, um, and so they were aware that I was going to to be on Manus Island. So people were being warned. So they they went to extraordinary levels to to, to stop the flow of information. I had. Um, uh, private investigators hired to find who my sources were for stories. I had phones tapped. I had, um, you, know, uh, the, uh, or, you know, people would turn up at events to kind of see what I was saying and see where I was going and see who I was talking to. Like these, these sorts of extraordinary efforts that you kind of don't believe are really going to happen. You think surely not, but, but that was the level that, that, that people were prepared to go to. And uh, another story is that, uh, uh, a story we worked together, if you remember, about LGBTQ people in Manus. And later, a report and document uh, released by um, uh, Crikey, the media. Crikey, yeah. yeah, yeah. And say that on that time, because that was one of the first stories, the immigration employed a detective to go and find out who was uh, actually source for that uh, story. That's, you know, but Omid was deported as well from Manus. I uh, visited Betrus for the first time in 2016 and uh, about 70% roughly of um, No Friend But The Mountains had been translated. And I wanted to get everything right, and uh, and I knew how important this book was going to be. So uh, I wanted to sit down with him and go through all the decisions that I made in terms of translation, make sure that I interpreted everything correctly. And so that was in 2016. The day I arrived was the day, unfortunately, they found the dead body of Hamid Shamshiripur. And that was my my first experience, my first encounter uh, at Manus. And we were busy for about five, six days working with journalists and trying to 
uh, address all of the different um, uh, inquiries and uh, and um, requests for information, and, and then we could get started on the on the book. I went back to Manus on two other occasions after that. The third time that I was there was when we did a lot of the filming for Australian Story for the ABC, and I got picked up at the airport on the way back to Australia. And they wrote down my name. They asked me what I was doing and all sorts of things and took me into an a, a isolated office. And then on the fourth time I tried to go to PNG, um, I didn't even get through the airport at uh, Port Moresby. Um, yeah, the very next day I was on the on the first plane back to Australia. And I'm blacklisted now in, uh, in PNG. And I think this relationship between what happens in Manus and the norms, the values, the principles, the uh, the, the different sorts of um, uh, systems uh, of control in Australia, I think is something that should be analysed a lot more. It's something that we're working on in terms of Manus prison theory, but what happens in Manus is uh, to people like Ben, to, to me and others, uh, it's uh, a reflection of some of the rights, the liberties that are being taken away from us right here. This is, should be seen as an experiment. My name is Fran. I'm a journalist with the ABC. I wonder what it was like for you, the decision to come to Australia, and then the moment you arrived in Australia and this time you spent here, given what we've been talking about, the industry, the violence, as you described it, and, and particularly coming to Parliament House. But just to come back here, was that sort of, you know, they said you'd never step foot in Australia. Here you are. Did you feel sort of gratified that you'd got through or fearful or furious or what were the, was there a mix of feelings? Uh, thank you. I didn't want to come to Australia just uh, for to visit. I wanted to come with something, you know, and I came with that book because, you know, generally Australia uh, for for many years, this government say that people use New Zealand as a backdoor. If we send refugees to New Zealand, they, then they come to Australia. But I cannot ignore that I'm connected to this country because I've been contributing to culture and political culture in this country. So I cannot ignore that. I've been working with many people in Australia from with uh, civil society, uh, within uh, artists, writers, with many people that I've worked with. And of course, I'm connected to this country and I cannot ignore that. And I cannot ignore that experience. And also, still so much to do. I say that still people... 70 people are in Port Moresby, 70 people are in Nauru. Still, the policy exists. Still, the detention industry exists. So I am responsible about that. But, of course, I don't want to just work about refugees. I want to do something else, and that's what I am doing. I want to write about something else. And I've written about something else, different stories. And I look at it as a... Uh, resistance because in the West people, the media put you in a box if you be a minority or if you refugee or they put
put you in a box and they expect that you always write about that box. And that's why I want to write about something else. And I'm doing that. And I look at it as a resistance. I want to write about something not about refugees. So, but visiting Australia, that I came here, uh, I came with a book. And we've done so much work since I've been here. I think we've done uh, at least 20 events across Australia. And the good thing is about my journey to Australia is that I am uh, free to go back to New Zealand whenever I want. <laughs> so I'm not very, uh, it's not like before, it's a different story. But the interesting thing is when I was in Manus Island, uh, people, not, not people, some trolls in uh, Australia, they always say to me that go back to Iran. And now some of them put the comment, go back to New Zealand. Yeah, that was a good feeling, actually. feel that uh, I have a place to go. Baruch, tonight, since I have the microphone, I get to afford myself the opportunity of the final question. And Fran has stolen a little bit of my thunder, but I'm going to, to tweak it slightly. Welcoming you to Sydney, Baruch, is something that I will personally and professionally carry with me as a highlight for the rest of my life. I want to acknowledge you. And I want to acknowledge that you carry a deep and heavy weight in this world. We call upon you to recall your experiences. We call upon you to call for change and accountability. You're speaking truth to power every day. And it's important to remember in all of this that you're here in 2023, highlighting that it is the current government indeed that sent you to Papua New Guinea. All of this is an insurmountable load to bear. Since arriving in Australia, you've proven Peter Dutton wrong. You've spoken at Parliament House, the very place that decided your fate. You've had Minister Dan Tian call you by name, a failing so many coalition politicians could not do for almost a decade. You've addressed thousands of people. You've been able to reconnect with many of your brothers and allies. Your journey to Australia has been an incredible one. And I'd like you to end by telling us, what do you take back to New Zealand from this experience? Again, a very hard question all of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, before I come to Australia, when I arrived in the airport in Melbourne, I was quite nervous. Because um, for many years I was working and I I work with many people, many projects that probably even people who follow my work they are not aware of them. You know, many projects, many different kind of works, and I felt that I or we created a resistance knowledge through a, uh, our work, you know, body of work that we created. And I felt that we impacted on Australia, we affected on Australia. 
But when I was in the airport, I felt that my time wrong. Yeah. Yeah, for a second, I was uh, not sure about it, you know. Uh, but it was very interesting. When I arrived there, the officer who checked my uh, strange passport, because my passport is a, a refugee travel document, and looked at me and said that I made uh, with Australian accent. Yeah, you look familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then I said, oh, yeah. So th when I uh, passed the gate, uh, yeah, and I met people, I felt relaxed. So in Australia, this is my feeling that I've been relaxed. Because uh, I say that I cannot, I've been working with a part of civil society in Australia. I cannot ignore that. So now that I go back, uh, I feel better. And generally, politically, I'm an angry person. Deliberately, I want to be angry. But in a personal life, of course, I'm not. We need that political anger. Yeah. So I always keep that anger politically. But in, within myself, my soul, I... I think I'm peaceful enough. So that's what I take. And another thing uh, that I didn't like that, uh, I didn't think that I am connected to uh, New Zealand. But when I came here, I feel that I'm connected to New Zealand. So I want to go back home. Baruz, I think it's clear that this room and so many people in Australia completely disagree with the Australian government and you will always be a much loved and respected member of this community. So thank you. Mm -hmm.